So the title of this study is going to be um, Loving Sinners by Faith. And this will really be a lesson where we can make some applications from some of the things that we've been, been thinking about. And we're really going to be working through verse uh, 14, so we're not, we're not going to be studying the whole chapter. Uh, usually the last parts of this chapter are the most emphasized and the most known. So like verse 16 and forward talks about the man who is throwing this like dinner feast, but then the people who are invited would not come and they all began to make excuses. Um, I've heard that talked about a lot through my life. And then obviously at the end of the chapter, you know, Jesus says, unless you hate father, mother, brother, sister, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So you've got these like really strong things that are said at the end of this chapter that I think sometimes can eclipse these earlier aspects of Luke 14. And I really want to look at verses 1 through 11 for the purpose of trying to lead into verse 12 and 14, 12 through 14. Um, just like personally for me, I think Luke 14, 12 through 14 are some of the most incredible, challenging, and insightful applications for evangelism that Jesus ever taught in his ministry and I think are taught anywhere in the New Testament. Um, so I think 12 and 14 are just outstanding verses to learn how to apply this faith toward evangelism, right? But we need to lead ourselves into the attitude to get there. So verses 1 through 11, that's what it's really dealing with in 1 through 11 is there, there's a mind that we need to be striving for and striving towards that will make 12 through 14 matter because applications that come out of faith can't be sustained or really applied in the right way without first understanding the mind that compels those things. Otherwise, it just it won't be applied or even when it begins to be applied, it'll be far too difficult and won't be looked at in the right way and it won't be done. So let's start in verse 1 through 6 here. And this, this will be a Bible class, so we'll, we'll be talking about these things a little bit here. Um, 1 through 6, I'll start by reading these. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there were in front of him, or, and there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent, and he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox or, or a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. So what's the setting here for this chapter? What's, what's like the circumstances that we're in this chapter? Yeah, so Luke talks a lot about Jesus in the house of Pharisees. I don't know why they kept letting Jesus into their homes because Jesus would always like make them feel ashamed by the end of their time together. Like every time, like Luke chapter seven is one of those times where this woman comes in with like a vial of perfume crying on his feet and the man's just revolted that Jesus would let this woman touch him and Jesus ends up rebuking him for that and teaching him a lesson. Um, Luke, uh, Luke chapter uh 10, I think it's Luke 11, actually. Let me look back and make sure I'm not giving you the wrong passage. Yeah, it's Luke 11. Jesus enters into another house of another Pharisee, and that's where, in Luke's record, Jesus pronounces those strong woes to the Pharisees. Woe to you, woe to you. Um, so this, 
This Pharisee apparently had not gotten the hint that having Jesus in your home would probably turn out to be an awkward thing. But in verse 1, what was the, what was the uh, day that this was happening in? Sabbath. Sabbath. So that's important. And I think we get the intent of the meal in some way with the end of verse 1. What were they doing with Jesus in this Pharisee's home in the beginning of this context? Yeah, yeah, watching them closely, right? So clearly this wasn't like, they weren't really interested in what Jesus was going to teach them. They were more interested in trying to find some way of having some kind of accusation against him. And there's this man suffering from dropsy. Does anybody know how to explain what dropsy is as a condition? Epilepsy, right? Uh, I don't know if it's epi- epilepsy necessarily. It's, it's when like, you've got a lot of, go ahead. Swelling. Swelling, yeah, and like what kind of swelling? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got like, your, your body would be like swelled up massively. Like you'd have like giant arms and your arms would be all red and like nasty looking. So there's this like scary looking guy with dropsy and Jesus asks them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And uh, they don't want to answer that question. So he just takes them, heals them, and then asks them another question in verse five. You know, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on Sabbath day? Jesus had a habit of saying things like this. Look at chapter 13. Uh, Chapter 13, uh, verse 10 through 17 is a very similar account. Jesus is in a synagogue. He heals this woman like bent over double, which sounds pretty miserable. And when the leader of the synagogue sees Jesus heal this woman, he like tells everyone, come on another day, not on the Sabbath day to be healed. And then if you look in verse 15, Jesus very directly just says, you hypocrites. And look how similar this is to what he says in chapter 14. He says, uh, Which one of you, or does not each of you on the Sabbath, untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And then uh, in verse 17, after he concludes, they have nothing to say and are humiliated. And then in chapter 6, if you'll turn back to chapter 6, 6 through 11, there's another very similar instance. There's a man with a withered hand. Jesus tells the man to just come forward and stretch out his hand. But before he does this, in verse 9, he says, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath to save a life or to destroy it? So I want you to think about this question. And we're going to be continuing in Luke 14 now as I ask this question. And I really want you to think about this. I think this is a hard question. Was the Sabbath from God's intention and purpose? Was the Sabbath meant to be an inactive day or an active day? Because the law of the Sabbath was rest. Do no work on the Sabbath day. Keep the Sabbath holy. And what was the consequence if you were to do work on the Sabbath? What was the penalty? Yeah, it was death. It's pretty severe, right? I don't think anybody ever treated the Sabbath like Jesus did. I think Jesus treated the Sabbath the way that God had always intended it to be treated. Uh, It's a challenging idea, an inactive day or an active day. When I think about the Sabbath, I think about like sitting on the couch with like my shirt like half rolled up. I've got like chips like dripped on my stomach and I'm like, you know, it's just a lazy day. You know, this is a day to do nothing and just relax and not worry about doing any work at all. And God's just given me a reason to just do absolutely nothing today, right? And that, that, that would be okay. Like, if you did that, you would be breaking no law. Like, if you just did literally nothing, like, you would, in a sense, be keeping the Sabbath. Go to Isaiah 58. 
This may, may seem like it's kind of difficult to figure out why this is so significant. Isaiah 58 is a really interesting chapter. It's really interesting. So he says in verse 3, God's talking to his people. They're, they're fasting. And they're complaining that God's not seeming to pay any attention to their fasting. They're humbling themselves and they're accusing God of not noticing at all. But then God replies in the second part of verse 3, Behold, in the day of your fast you find your desire, and you drive hard all your workers. You fast for contention and strife, to strike with the wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. So this fast, if you look in verse 13, I think he's really referring to the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath really was a fast day. I mean, even if you ate food on the Sabbath, like you were ceasing from your work on the Sabbath. So it was like, it was a fast in a sense. So in verse 13, he says, if because of the Sabbath, you turn your foot from doing this, this, and this, and I'll get to that in a minute. But just to emphasize, it's, I think it's the Sabbath he's talking about. Look at verse five now. Is this not the fast which I choose? So I want to ask you this. Verse six and seven. What are some active things that God is saying that he had intended to be done on the Sabbath? Verse, uh, verse 6 and 7. What are some active things that God is commanding there? There we go. We got one. Loosen the bonds of wickedness. That requires some activity. What's the next one? Yeah, sharing. In verse 7, you've got dividing your bread with the hungry, right? What else? Yeah, that's really interesting. Let the oppressed go free. Yeah. What else? Undo heavy burdens. Man, that's going to take some work. Undoing someone's heavy burden. What else? Break every yoke. That's going to be really difficult. How about verse 7? There's a, I think. Bring to your house the poor. Yeah, bring the poor into your house. We're going to see that in Luke 14. Uh, what else? Cover the naked. What else? There's one more. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So I ask again, did God intend the Sabbath to be an active day or an inactive day? Inactive day. The Sabbath was meant to be a really busy day, but not for the works of men. You know what's interesting? The Sabbath revealed, the Sabbath revealed that the Pharisees believed they were saved by works and not by faith. Because the Sabbath would divide out the work and purpose of men independent from God and the work and purpose of men dependent on God that is always approved, even on the Sabbath. So look at verse 13. I think here's where he's very clear. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing whose pleasure? Your own pleasure. And call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, and honor it, desisting from whose ways? And seeking whose pleasure? And speaking whose word? Then you will delight in the Lord. And God would fulfill his marvelous promises in verse 14. Make you ride on the heights of the earth, feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. The Sabbath was meant to be an active day. And we're not going to get too far into this because the purpose of the, the study is to lead into uh, verse 12 through 14. But the Sabbath, there's other places where it talks about how it's a day of remembrance, remembering God's deliverance. God worked on the Sabbath. He worked to deliver his people from Egypt. 
the Sabbath was a day that I could think about God's command in the Sabbath, that my works deserve death. But as I humble my works, as my works and my thoughts are deceased and desisted from, as I denounce my ways, the purpose of the Sabbath was to focus completely on God's works and purpose. How I've received God's works and purpose. How God, even on the Sabbath, is continuing to fulfill his work and purpose because people are still receiving life and food. Animals are still receiving life. And Jesus even says, they get this. Because look at Luke 14 again, verse, uh, verse 5. What does Jesus say all of them do on the Sabbath day? Yeah, so they get it. Like, they pull their ox out of the ditch on the Sabbath day. That's ultimately like Isaiah 58, just applied toward a stupid animal that ultimately is not nearly as valuable as a human being in their soul, right? So Jesus is pointing out their hypocrisy. The Sabbath, and I'm being purposed in how I'm articulating this. The Sabbath was the realization of God's system of value. It was the day when God's values could be valued by us as he values people and things. This chapter, Jesus is actually just teaching about the Sabbath in this chapter, the fulfillment of the Sabbath. The idea of like, unless you hate father, mother, brother, sister, even your own life, he's just teaching what the Sabbath really meant all along. When he says, unless you forsake everything you possess, you cannot be my disciple, he's just teaching about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the key to God's system and view of value. When you would humble yourself, you would realize that even if you rest, there's other people who are still being oppressed. There's other people who aren't really getting God's rest and promise. But if you have the ability to gain that rest for yourself, you also have the ability to extend that rest for others. Big, like I'm going to open a, like a little box and just throw it away really fast. Genesis chapter 2, the seventh day. It's interesting, the seventh day, which became like the Sabbath, the seventh day, the day God rested, days one through six, it says there was evening and morning, first day, second day, evening and morning. So like the days concluded, you know, that didn't happen on the seventh day. There was no evening and morning the seventh day. It's just he sanctified the seventh day, made it holy and rested on the seventh day. The inference that I think is there, and this is just opinion, the seventh day never actually ended. And everything that God ever did from that point forward was to bring his creation into that rest the day of God's rest, that God always acted consistent with a desire to grant salvation and rest to his creation. So, Jesus didn't stop what he was doing on the Sabbath because everything, God, everything Jesus did was not his own pleasure, it was not his own will, it was not his own works. Everything he did was a fulfillment of the works of salvation from the Father. So everything he did was as lawful to do on the Sabbath as on other days. So that leads us into verse 7 through 11. Um, I think the principle, again, is just the value God places on his creation cannot be understood or joined until we desist our own ways and our own pleasures. So verse 7. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the best places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may be invited by him. And he who invited you will both come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. 
so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus is teaching a story. This story is interesting, and the next one. When Jesus would teach stories in Luke, and I think it maybe applies to all the stories Jesus would tell, he actually gives us the option to put ourselves in the story somewhere. Um, And he kind of puts us there as he teaches us, because he says, when you are invited, right? So we we can choose, like, you know, where are we going to put ourselves? How are we going to see ourselves in the story? Or we can just see it as a story and not put ourselves in it at all. But the reason he tells the story is we gain conviction when we see ourselves in it, in the place where we'll be most convicted. So in verse 8, what kind of feast is he talking about here? What's, what's the feast he's talking about? Wedding. wedding feast. So that's pretty important. Uh, do you, have you ever been to a wedding feast where there was assigned seating? I have. I've been to weddings where like, the groomsmen and the bridesmaids, they had assigned seating and then like people's names were like put on the chairs and everything, right? So I think that's, that's interesting. He's, he's invited to a wedding feast and I think the, the inference is that there's actually an intention from the people hosting it to seat people in very certain places. But the person who's invited, it seems like they're getting there earlier than anybody. So nobody's there yet and they've got this choice with this big open room. They can sit wherever they want wherever they want. You've got the big, important table over there. You've got the unimportant tables over here. And you can just, he can sit wherever he wants. The first example is someone who does what? What does he do? He goes to the big table. Yeah, so he goes to the big table, picks the important place. What does that say about his attitude about himself? Uh, not a whole lot of humility. Yeah, so he really thinks he's somebody pretty important, right? But then when the person who invited him comes, he says, whoa, 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 this is not where you were supposed to sit. And then he proceeds in disgrace to occupy which place? Last place. So he was actually supposed to be in the very last place, right? The most unworthy position. Then you've got this other guy who comes in. Room is still empty. And what position does this next person take? Last. So it's, it's worth noting, he doesn't just take like, a minor position or like one of the, you know, lesser position, he actually chooses to take the last place. So just think about this. This person comes into this room. It's empty. You got the big important table, same tables, same everything. And he actually decides in his mind, man, I belong over here at this last position. That's where I belong. So just think about what does that say about his thought process? You know, what does he think about himself in relation to the host the people who are going to be present. He thinks he's worth less than all of them, every last one. But as it happens, the people end up coming in and the person who invited him comes in. And what happens here? Yeah, he says, friend, what are you doing down there? You got to come up higher. And then in the sight of everyone, he's honored and exalted. You know what's interesting is in verse uh, 10, um, when the host comes to him, again, how does he refer to this man? The first man was not called friend. Don't you think it's interesting that the person who knew the host better took the last place and the one who did not know the host 
took the first place, it depended on how close they were to the host. You see the application of that, right? Right? Like Abraham in the presence of him whom he believed, right? Understanding God's promise, the Sabbath, with if I would really recognize my position on the Sabbath, thinking about all these blessings, God's deliverance and the Exodus, the, the nation I'm living in, all these things that God had done and really thought about those things and how my works deserve death if I do them on that day, how unworthy would that make me feel to be in this position? I deserve the last place. Interesting example in uh, the book of Joshua, the Gibeonites. Oh, almost tripped there. The Gibeonites were uh, one of the, the mighty like military cities and kingdoms in Canaan when Joshua and the nation of Israel came into it. Does anybody remember what the Gibeonites did just off the top of your head? They're the ones that tricked. That's right. Yep. So they dressed in ragged clothing, sackcloth, took moldy bread, and they said, we're from a far off place. Like, can you make a covenant with us? And then they didn't inquire of the Lord, so they agreed. Uh... They were one of the mightiest, strongest, royal nations in Canaan. And they humbled themselves and made them poor. You know what's interesting about that? The other kings of Canaan, they heard about this. They heard that the Gibeonites humbled themselves and they got angry. So they all united together to attack the Gibeonites. God did something. He threw hailstones from heaven and stopped the sun at the command of Joshua to defend the Gibeonites which I think was a seal of his love for those Gibeonites, right? Now, they lied, right? But the point of the story isn't to say, oh, their their lying was a good thing or that Joshua not inquiring of the Lord was a good thing. I don't think any of that is the point. The point is that God accepted them into his nation because they did humble themselves and they were exalted for it. The reason I say all of that, when Joshua found out that they were Canaanites, uh, he said, for this, the consequence, you will always be slaves, to the priests of the temple and tabernacle. You'll always be slaves. You're just going to be workers, menial workers. And they said, oh, wonderful. May God, may God do as you say. You know, they, they just were so happy that they could just be the lowest position in Israel because to them, I mean, you think the catastrophe that was about to come upon them, right? Compared to the blessing of just being able to be a peg in the place of God's presence, Right? If we really understand the host, who's inviting us into the kingdom, it will destroy our arrogance. It will make us ashamed to flatter any kind of ideas of self-image and self-exaltation. It'll make us feel terrible when people say nice things to us and we feel that that glory was not directed to God, but some glory was stolen for ourselves. The conviction that this creates, I think, is, is so substantial and deep and important when we're dealing with evangelism. Because the key to evangelism is one through six. We acknowledge God's working and are determined to desist from our own ways and dependent of God. And in seven through 11, because of knowing the God we serve who's invited us, we are so convicted of our unworthiness, we want to take the lowest place we possibly can take everywhere we go. I'm going to ask a, a hard question, so if, you don't, if you're not able to answer this, that's okay. But can you think about any ways to practically apply this principle? If, if not, I know it's like, I didn't like tell you a week in advance, like, hey, study this chapter to think about it. But can you think about 
ways that we can practically put ourselves in the last place, like circumstances where we could maybe think about doing that? Anybody have any applications? Right. Perfect. Yeah, great relation. Yeah. Very good. Good connection. Anybody else? In our approach, or I guess our attitude and approach to talking with others about mm. the truths in the Bible, uh, you know, just to me, screams out, it should be very humble. Yeah. You know, in the absence of arrogance and anything like that. Right. That's right. There's a, a lot of ways I find that I can come off as being better than others without, without like intending to do so. You know, like it's not like in every circumstance I'm trying to put myself in front of others, but pursuing the last position actually takes purposed work. You don't just end up in the last position because you just kind of found yourself there. This, this guy had to make the choice. And I think that's the idea is it's important that this is held on to because when Jesus says the greatest among you must become the least, you will never, ever be the least among your brethren without purposely working to put yourself there. You'll never, you'll never get there without purposely doing it. Jesus had to purposely pursue the cross and put himself there. He would never have gotten there if it was not his purpose, his full intention, right? It's a discipline, yeah. That's right. That's right. Right. Great. 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 Right. Right. That's right. Yes. That's right. That's right. Mark. Foot, foot washing example is Great. you know, basically with the apostles there, you know, it makes you think about this. Uh, you know, actively putting himself at the bottom uh, with regard to service. Yeah, it, right. It's, it's not necessarily just a spot. It's a thing you do. Yeah, that's right. Like. Um, you know, there's a, do I open the door for you or do you open the door for me? Right, right. That, that, that mindset that... Um, you can escape that uh, idea that I'm the greatest, you're going to be a better servant. Right, that's right. Because I think like there's, there's an ongoing mentality this creates of how can I show more interest in people and how, how can I perceive the burdens people have that I can work to relieve? And I think ultimately like spiritual burdens are ultimately what we're thinking about. You know, but like you were saying, there's, there's physical things. And I think like one way this manifests itself is just how concerned we are about relieving the burdens of others and I think we find true relief when our obsession and our passion is the relief of the burdens of others and not obsessing over our own personal rest. 
Um, kind of like what Jesus said, do unto others as you want done to you. You know, like as I give to others what ultimately in selfishness I could take for myself, I actually receive what I'm trying to take by actually giving to someone else what I could selfishly look for myself to gain, right? And I gain the very thing that selfishly I would try to get. It's, it's very ironic, actually. So Jesus, again, one through six, his life was the Sabbath, a fulfillment of the Sabbath. And yet Jesus had the peace that surpasses understanding. On the Sabbath, he would heal the sick. He would give people time. He would teach. He would work. But it was all works of rest and salvation for the sake of others. Therefore, Jesus had a joy that is so hard to even begin to comprehend or tap into. So with that, let's go into verse 12 through 14. He went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, I want to assure you of something. This is going to be an uncomfortable passage to talk about, but I, I do not have a hold on this. And applying this, I find to be really, really difficult. Um, so, like, in any of these lessons in this whole series of meetings, like, don't be discouraged at feeling like this is something beyond your current grasp or practice. The point of these lessons is to encourage us to see that God will provide for his promise and works to be fulfilled, but we have to realize we've got to reach farther forward to really attain to these things, right? So the first hard question, I mean, we, we read the passage, and I think you see what, what's being talked about here, and I just have to ask, have you ever done anything like this? Like, have you ever sought out to do something like this? Is that, has this been something you've done before? Uh, we've got to figure this out. I mean, this, this, is, this is a command, right? So we've got to figure this out. And I think it requires the principle of the Sabbath. We really do have to hold on to this work and command, desist from our ways and just latch onto it and think, what, what's got to be done in my life so that this becomes something I'm practicing? So let's think and talk about that. So he says not to invite a group of people, but what's the first kind of person he says not to invite? Friends. Yeah. So it's interesting he says, don't invite your friends. So he's saying, like, don't invite people you're close to already. So that's hard. So when in verse 3, he's talking about who to invite. He's talking about strangers or people who aren't really well known yet, you know. Uh, so that's difficult. It's really what in evangelism, we're trying to learn to care about strangers more. We're not looking to just have our own established circle. We're trying to look for ways to bring other people in right? What kind of people did he say to invite, by the way? Who is, who's being looked for here? Yeah, and what kind of needs are described here? Right, and so that, that's so interesting, isn't it? Because he's saying, like, don't invite your friends, your rich neighbors and relatives, because, man, the scary thing is they might actually repay you. And it's like, well, I, th- I thought that would be kind of nice. You go back to Luke chapter 6. The last time I visited with this congregation, we looked at this chapter specifically, Luke 6.35. Uh, Luke 6.35, and this is like, if you write references in your Bible, I would write Luke 6.35 there. Probably, you probably already have a reference just from the translators putting it in. But it says, But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting, your translation might say hoping, for nothing in return, 
and your reward will be great, for you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to the ungrateful and evil men. Right? So the kind of attitude we're looking to create is we're actually not looking to receive anything. We're looking to spend resources without getting anything back, and that's what we're hoping for. That's what God does. God is the spender. He's the giver. When we believe what we give back to God is not that we, he gets anything more. He gets the opportunity to spend more resources that he wouldn't be able to otherwise spend in our salvation. God is just a spender. He spends, 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 spends. And he just, he loves spending and he loves giving. And if this is what we'll do, we can know God in ways impossible to comprehend if we don't imitate the character and heart of God in these things. So I want you to think about how this would work out. This, this guy in this story has, you know, done a lot to prepare a good dinner for these strangers. Have you guys ever been in a really nice place that you felt really uncomfortable to be in? Like you go into a nice home, like Savannah's got homes like this. You go into a house and it's like, it's so nice. Everything is so expensive. And you kind of laugh and look around and you point at things and whisper things. And then you leave and you're like, man, I'm glad I got out of there. You know, it's like, that was so nice. It made me feel really uncomfortable. Do you know how hard it is to make somebody feel comfortable in an environment that they think is way too nice for them to be in? How much work you have to do to try to help them understand how welcome they are? And how much conversation you have to purposely initiate to make them feel like they don't need to just rush out the door and never come back again. Um, The person doing this kind of thing is only spending resources, only spending. Not just money and work for the food, but emotional energy and thought and dedication to the people. It's, it's almost like, in a sense, he's willing to enter into a covenant with these people who are being invited. And not on the basis of anything they've done, but it's because they just have needs, right? So let's say this guy goes out and he's looking for some of these strangers and he ends up finding somebody who's poor. So he's got to convince this person that this feast has been provided and that it's something that, you know, he would really appreciate. So he brings him back and says, okay, now you just wait here and just stay here. I've got to go fill my table up. So he goes and he finds somebody who's crippled. And so he like carries him on his back and is talking to him on the way back and trying to make friends with him on the way back and find some way to like relate to him and ends up bringing him back to his house and sits him down and says, okay, now you, you wait here. I'm going to try to find someone else. He finds someone lame who can't walk and he ends up putting him on like a pallet and dragging the pallet back to his house And he's trying to like make friends with him and listen to his life story. And he's showing a lot of interest in him on his way back. And he tells that guy, he's like, okay, wait, wait here. I need something to find someone else. And then in verse 13, he finds somebody who's blind and he takes him by the hand and tries to convince him that he's actually going to lead him somewhere where he can trust him. Leads him by the hand back to his house. Again, he's talking to him. He's trying to get to know him and make him comfortable. So let's say now all these guys get at the table. Well, now what? You've got a blind guy sitting there. You've got a crippled guy sitting there. You've got a poor guy who maybe is only used to eating with his hands and maybe that's okay, I don't know. But he's going to have to begin to serve all of these people at the table. The blind guy is going to have to hold his hand and like, here's the food, here's the utensil. You know, here, here it is, take it. And then, you know, God guides him through the process. The crippled man, he's going to have to feed him. So he's going to have to maybe sit between them strategically and like 
help the blind man not get lost, help the crippled man to eat his food. And then you've got the poor guy who's looking around this whole time thinking like, I don't belong here. This is so uncomfortable what this guy is doing for me. I just can't believe what's happening. And you imagine as the poor man sees all this happening, how he could begin to think about how unworthy and undeserving he is and begin to, in his mind, begin to disassociate himself from everything out of fear that this is just, it's too much. It's too much. But I want to show you something. Go to Luke 22. The disciples, after Jesus had girded himself to serve them, as Mark pointed out, uh, they decide to begin to argue about which one of them is the greatest. And in verse 26, he says, But it is not this way among you, but the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? I'm sorry. But I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus saying, like, look, I'm the one serving. You know, the master is supposed to be the one seated who gets served, but that's that's not how this is. The greatest is the servant of all. Now look at verse 28. You are those who have stood with by me in my trials, just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Isn't that interesting? They're arguing about who's the greatest, and Jesus says, you know what? You are pretty great. You know, just like God granted me a throne, you know what? I'm going to give you all thrones too, and you're going to sit on those thrones as judges. That's dangerous, isn't it? But what was about to happen? Jesus was about to be taken, arrested, and they were all about to run away as cowards. And I can just imagine the disciples perceiving when they hear about his resurrection and contemplating this promise. That ultimately this promise is not fulfilled through their works or greatness, but actually in relation to this promise that they're dead. There's no ability for this to be fulfilled of themselves. And they begin to realize that the resurrection proves that not by their works, but by Jesus' faithfulness to fulfill these promises, that these things still could remain true even after they had abandoned him in his time of greatest need. And you begin to think about the importance of this being told to his disciples before they had abandoned him. You imagine Jesus thinking, don't leave. Come back. Because how easy it is to see the glory of God's character in person, to think when I sin and walk away, you know, it's just it's too much work for God. I'm too far gone. It's just too difficult. And not realizing God loves serving. I don't know if, like, you have a fear of hospitality because your house could get dirty by dirty people. Um, it can really require a lot of work to clean up the mess people leave behind. People who aren't used to being respectful to nice things can be extremely inconsiderate. And there's no guarantee in the story of Luke 14 that these are people who are even going to appreciate what's happening. 
So imagine the poor man like touching everything and like ripping things and dropping things and he's he's acting like an animal and eating food in a disgusting way and it's like it's like ugh. But in the story in the parable think about the kind of things that we do to God's house, right? You know that when we're saved, God knows, God knows how hard it's going to be, how dirty we could make his house be from our continued sin. Don't you think he knows that the work of his service at our salvation is really just beginning? But I want to tell you something. In Ephesians, when it talks about God granting us the seal of the Holy Spirit of promise at the point of our salvation, the reason is God wants us to know that when we're saved, he's put all his chips on the table. He is fully committed. And it doesn't matter what sin we struggle with, how deeply we've fallen into that sin, God wants us to know and be fully assured through his service in our willingness to just let him do his work through our faith. We can stay in his house. He'll change us. Go ahead, Mark. He, just, he describes those that will be in his kingdom as right. those that come from those low positions. That's right. And, That's right. And those are the ones that wind up in the other story, you know, with, with those are the ones that wind up with the invitation. That's right. The other ones that were somebody, thought they were somebody. That's right. Didn't respond correctly. That's right. That's right. So our faith ultimately is meant to teach us to love people radically, at our own expense, without getting anything back, losing our emotion, losing our time, losing our resources, losing our energy, not getting frustrated, not giving up, but being renewed like the eagle in Isaiah 40 when other people stumble and fall and cannot continue in their faith because it's just it demands too much. Love is excruciating. God's love requires the complete sacrifice of self. It's excruciating. But if I will have faith like Abraham, I can love in the most painful ways and have the deepest, greatest joy, knowing that God sees, God knows, and God is with me. So what are some ways that we can conclude this study by thinking about practical kind of ways to fulfill this command? And again, like, no pressure. Like, if, if you don't have any ideas, like, I'll just give some suggestions, but... As we've talked about these principles, has there been anything that's come to your mind, ways that we can work to fulfill this? Stephen. I think one of the things is expectation. Mm. And, you know, seeing the fruits of these actions. Right. Especially thinking about evangelism. Right, right. You know, don't expect to be repaid. Um, You also think about that aspect that said about verses 1 through 6, I think deal with, you know, the, the, the focusing on the fruit of our own actions versus the fruit mm. of God's actions. That's good, yeah, really good. And it's important that we know that you know, we, we may never really see the fruit of our actions. Right, it's a great point. Something, but yeah, great point, Mark. I, you know, I guess your vision of what the kingdom looks like, you know, aligning that with you know, the way he describes it, you know, the kind of people that it's full of, seeing yourself as one of those folks. Right. Real, yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, right. I, I think it's, well, it's real tempting, and I, I'm sure we've all fallen into it. We've got our vision of what the church is supposed to look like and who's supposed to be in it. And, uh, you know, it's, 
uh, even though we may not teach the prosperity gospel, we certainly act like that's what we Oh, it's so easy. Well. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what you want. And that's right. That's what's comfortable. And, you know, having that vision that you're that uh, wretched person. That's or right. Whatever, and that's what the kingdom's supposed to contain. Yep, exactly. And that's where I think the disciples after Jesus' crucifixion would see themselves. That they weren't on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel because they were some great people. They were nobodies. Peter was a nobody only because of Jesus serving them and choosing them. That's it. Any other applications? Thoughts? Amen. That's right, Ori. That's right. Amen. And that's like the Sabbath, you know, focusing on the works of God and being driven to imitate those works. Amen. Mm. Yeah, great. Right. Right. That's right. All right. So I'll, I'll leave that with you guys to think about. But just a couple couple thoughts on how to apply this. Um, Find ways to bring people into your life, you know? Like, don't be afraid of, like, getting things dirty and um, being vulnerable and, and having to do a lot of work, a lot of awkward work to connect with people. It's really hard to connect with strangers and make people you haven't known for a while feel like they can have confidence to get to know you. It's really hard. And you can always, you'll basically always feel like, I always feel like I'm failing. And it always feels like an incredibly awkward experience. But... God's able to open so many doors through this. So don't, don't be afraid to try to get to know people you don't know already and really try to take that risk in faith. Think, pray for opportunities like this. Pray for wisdom. You know, God, like Romans 4, calls into being things that don't exist. If you want to do this, if you want to humble yourself in this way, God will provide. God will provide. He'll equip you with the heart and the mind to do it. You can have confidence in that. And thirdly, the conversations that need to happen about the gospel will always, always happen if I'm loving people because of my first love for God. So like I might be eating a meal with someone and my desire ultimately is like I, wanna, I want them to understand that like we need to study, we need to talk about the gospel. But if I love people in a way that is like this, those conversations, I guarantee you, they will happen. And they will happen in a really good context. And they'll be able to happen in the right way. Mark. I'll say that, you know, you always worry about, you know, what my friends think or what this one think. Mm. But you just got to remember that all honest people know that you're a failure and that they're a failure. <laughs> right. Yes. So, you yeah. know, you, you kind of got to get past that. Yes. Know, that whole uh, pretend vision of right. what we all are. Absolutely. Kind of, that's, a, that's a handicap. Right. Yep. And you're going to need, I need, constant help to not get frustrated um, with, with difficult situations that come through trying to get to know people. Um, people take advantage of this kind of thing. People will take and take and take and take. And if you're not careful, as people take and take and take, you'll begin to get suspicious of people. You'll begin to get bitter. You'll begin to second guess people's motives when they're spending time with you. Or you'll hear people talk in a certain way like, uh, yeah, I've heard I've heard someone talk like that before. I know where this is going. You know, those are anti-Christ thoughts. Those are not consistent with the spirit of Christ. And so there's just a constant need 
to just keep going back to that Sabbath principle, remembering I'm the poor man. God could be suspicious of me. I could think things that God could say, up. Oh, here goes Brian again thinking those things. I've seen where this is going to go, you know. It helps us know the heart and the mind of God in ways that are so deep and substantial. So I would just encourage you, keep thinking about this verse. Really hold on to it because by faith, this, this produces the fruit of righteousness and peace.